Well, good morning. My name is Derek, one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 15, so turn there. And if you need a Bible, grab one back there or pull out your phone and download one real quick. Um, is, uh, is anybody curious or uncomfortable by all the suits you've seen today? <laughs> a couple, couple hands raised. What if... What if you were visiting, and maybe you are visiting, and you walked in and, and all the men were dressed like this? What, what would you think? Would you turn around and leave? Would you be like, this is my, Paul says yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, Paul already said, hey, if we're dressing like that, I'm finding a new church. Um, so is there something more or less spiritual about how we dress when we come to church? You know, we, uh, <laughs> I, when I was talking to Paul some weeks ago about this day, I said, hey, I want to make a point, and so I want us to wear, uh, like, flowered shirts and shorts and flip-flops. And he's like, I don't think people will get that point. Um, <laughs> look at the way Paul, who's playing right here, is dressed today. That's how he's dressed, except for the flip-flops. I said, okay, how about if we wear suits? He's like, ooh, yeah, that'll make a point. There's a lot of traditions, you know, traditional church where this is how you dress when you go. In fact, there was uh, one time I was teaching at a church. I was preaching, and I was wearing jeans and a nice shirt. And after the sermon, um, this uh, old, older guy, seasoned believer, um, mature maybe believer, came up. And he's like, you know, things are good, and your shirt is great, but you're wearing jeans. I said, yeah, I'm wearing jeans. He's like, is that, I don't know, you know, he was all tied up that I was wearing jeans. So I actually grabbed my Bible and I said, show me in here where dress matters in church. And he's like, well, it's not. And my response was, you're not who I'm trying to reach. You know, you, this, you're all wrapped up in this when there's all these other people that are coming saying, wow, I really relate because you're just a normal person. There's something sometimes about the suit, you know, that, that puts distance between us and others. Now, to be honest, dress is cultural. There's other cultures, maybe down in the Bible Belt, where coming in in jeans and a flannel will be distracting. And so the appropriate thing then would be to wear a suit. There's nothing more or less spiritual about how we dress. And I'm never doing this again. Um, so now's your time to take a picture. No. But my question is, what traditions... What are those things, traditions or maybe secondary doctrines, do we put, do we elevate that create barriers to people coming to Christ? Or are there other things that we do or say, again, dress, secondary beliefs, that we make central and we elevate them, that if somebody walks in, they're like, ooh, this isn't the place for me. Maybe in our personal lives or as a church, we can do these things. It comes down to really our mission. I here's our mission. We have our mission and vision. We taught on this recently. Our mission here, connecting people to the abundant life only possible through an abiding relationship with Jesus. That's just our way of restating the great commission of go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded. The mission of the church is to reach lost people that they come to know Christ and then grow in their faith in him. You know, grow up abundant life, not health and wealth and prosperity. That's not the abundant life. But it's joy, peace, love in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's this abundant life that God wants. That's our mission. But we have a tendency as a church, and I'm not talking just common ground, but the church in general, every church has a tendency to drift in some ways, to drift and to focus on maybe some wrong things that, that, 
distract from the main mission. And here's the good news. We're not the first ones to struggle with that. Turn to Acts 15, if you would. In Acts 15, we're going to see the early church deal with this issue. Not of wearing a suit. I don't think they had suits. But we are going to, we're going to look at some of the things that they struggled with that they were placing as barriers to people coming to faith or to coming to church. Some distraction from the mission. Now, uh, if you were here last week, we looked at the gospel in Acts 13. You're wondering, well, we skipped Acts 14. Yep, we're skipping Acts 14. Um, if we go really verse by verse through the whole book, we're going to be in this book for a year. Um, and there's some redundancy. So, but this week, I encourage you to go back and read Acts 14. It's a, one of my favorite stories is actually in Acts 14 where Paul, on this missionary journey, is in a town and they stone him. He's telling people about Jesus, so they kill him for it. And if you study stoning in the first century, it's, it's not like throwing little pebbles. It's they take somebody, they drop them off about a 15-foot ledge or cliff, and then they drop rocks on them, you know. So that's, that's, he got stoned to the point where they thought he was dead. They drug him outside the city and just left him there. And he gets up, brushes himself off, and walks to the next city. Some would argue he was dead, and God just, you know, brought him back up. Some would say he was close to dead, but God just, he, whatever. He, he gave his life. He, this is him. He's giving his life for the faith. He's giving his life for Christ. He's stoned for it, drug out of town. He dusts himself off and then moves on. And so now we're picking it up where Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch. If you remember, this is where they were sent out from. Uh, Jerusalem, if you picture your map, you have the Mediterranean Sea. Um, the Sea of Galilee, sorry. And the Mediterranean Sea is over there too. Sea of Galilee is right there. South of that is Jerusalem. Go up past, you have Antioch. And then you have the, the Greek area, the Gentile area up there. Antioch, that's the church that sent them out, Paul and Barnabas, to the missionary journey up there. Now they're back in Antioch. And some people from Jerusalem had heard what was happening up north. A lot of these Gentiles are being saved. And so they took it upon themselves to come up and correct some things. Let's look at Acts 15, if you would, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Time out right there. Again, these are genuine believers. These are, are Jews converted to Christ. They go on a trip up there and they're like, hey, it's great you've heard about Jesus, but you can't actually really be saved unless you become Jewish, which means you become circumcised. So discovery classes up there in that area were mostly women and kids. Uh, the men were strangely absent. Because can you imagine that? Hey, come to know Christ, but we need you to do something first before you can actually be saved. Well, they're up there spreading this around. Paul and Barnabas hear about it, and they get a little bit ticked. Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. No small dissension, debate. Paul had just gone through this trip, Paul and Barnabas. They had seen many come to faith in Jesus. They had seen God do great things. They had seen the Holy Spirit come upon Gentile believers. He had been stoned for it. And now there's some people coming around saying, you did okay, but, but let's, we're going to help fix what you messed up. You also need to become Jewish. No small debate to the point where they say, we need to go to Jerusalem, to the apostles there, and we need to get a ruling for the church on this issue. 
So here's kind of the question we're going to ask today. This is in your notes. But what do we do when fellow believers disagree with our traditions or secondary doctrines? Or when we disagree with maybe their traditions? Or, or we find out we have something we're really holding on to and find out, ooh, that's not biblical, or it's just plain secondary. Well, a church-wide decision needed to be made. Look at verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Again, picture this scene, Paul and Barnabas now, they're walking, they're coming from the north to the south, so they have to go through Phoenicia, then Samaria, which there are already churches in those areas. Go back in Acts, you see Philip is one who went to Samaria, planted a church there, people were saved. So they're passing through saying, up north God is doing great things, lots of Gentiles are getting saved, and it's joy is coming to all the church. And so they get to Jerusalem, and they continue telling it, and people are just hearing, wow, God is saving these pagans, and, and I mean, if you understood the Gentiles of that day, they were much, I guess, like the worldly in the United States today. Believe in whatever, everything out there, very sexually immoral. I mean, all this stuff. It's like, those people are being saved? Wow. Look at verse, where are we at? Uh, verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. Why is it that pretty much every church struggles with this at times? There's people that just want to pour water on what God is doing. God is doing great things, and they're walking through spread, and they're like, eh, it's not as good as you think. They're not actually saved. They need to be circumcised. We have this struggle. There's always some that just want to, they just want to throw water on what God is doing. Oh, God is moving over here. Now, is he really? I mean, look at those people. Is it really them? Well, that's these people. They're from the party of the Pharisees. Uh, this was the group that Jesus had a lot of trouble with. But realize these are believers. These are genuine believers struggling with this. These are not wolves coming into the church. You know, from Satan trying to deceive. These are true believers, but they're, they're wrong. They're struggling. So Paul is going to, or the, the, this council is going to hear this and address this idea. But this is what it is. It's circumcision and the law of Moses. Laws. Is there anything added to faith in Jesus? Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead. We believe in him. But is there something else added to that? They're saying, yes, there's some things you need to add to that, and it's following the Mosaic law. This is what we need to add. Now, we're going to see Peter, and I really like Peter as he addresses this. Um, but this is something, to be honest, that we do struggle with in the church today. And, and I've seen this. I was in a parking lot at one, one time, um, and there was a young man, and he was very loud, but he was cussing out somebody else in the parking lot of the church. And I was with this other group, and I look over, and I heard them murmuring around. It's like, oh, people like that. We don't need people like that around here. And it just kind of struck me of, that's exactly the type of people we need around here. You know, those people need to be around here. Should they be cussing real out in the park? No. <laughs> that, but instead of, oh, no, we're supposed to look like this, and they don't, so they need to be out. There's a switch, you know, and it was a switch that I wrestled with of, no, how about we reach out to that person with love and grace? They we're so glad that you're here instead of putting these barriers up like these people were doing. So Peter is going to speak up, looking at verse 6. The apostles, the elders, were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting to God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's so blunt. (laughs) But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. If you remember Peter, Peter already had this conversation with God a little bit before. You know, Peter had been up on on a roof, he was praying, and God kind of gave him this vision of animals coming down out of heaven, and he said, take and eat, and he, he struggled with the vision, all pointing to Peter, go to the house of a Gentile, a Roman soldier, go to this house, go in, which it was not appropriate for a Jew to go into the house and eat with Gentiles, but he did. God was trying to tell Peter, I'm including the Gentiles also. This distinction of clean and unclean, that's going away. And so Peter already had this wrestle with God. And God clarified. And so through Peter went down preaching the word, they received the Holy Spirit. They weren't circumcised and then received the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit. Evidence, boom, they were saved right then and right there. And so Peter points it out, hey, we've already been through this. God saved them without adding these other laws to it. Listen, no works or deeds can be added as requirements for salvation. We are saved by grace and faith alone, not by religious observance. If you start adding law, it actually negates the gospel. If you start adding works to it, it takes away what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is done. He did that because we couldn't do it. So why, for some reason, do we as a church have this tendency to want to add other rules to it? It's just this bent that we had. Martin Luther actually said, you know, we are kind of interwired for works righteousness. We want to add it. I mean, in all honesty, what if we had a list of seven things? You do these, you're good. That feels actually a little bit easier. We bend that way. And so they, they point out here, it's by faith alone. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And then back in verse 9, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Very consistently in the New Testament, saved by faith, by the grace of God, not by works, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. So no one can boast. No works added to it. Now, does this mean our lives aren't changed after we're saved? Absolutely not. And we have to be careful with that, that God saves us and then just leaves us. No, God saves us. He accepts us where we are, and then he starts a work to change us, to make us like him. We should do good works. We should start to love what he loves. We should start to want to go his way. So we need to be careful with that. But no works are added to salvation. Now James is going to speak up, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Who's James, real quick? This is Jesus' little brother. (laughs) This is the half-brother who didn't believe in Jesus until he saw him risen from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead, made a special appearance to his brother James. And so James now is the leader of the Jerusalem church. So the whole idea, the Catholic idea of popes, from Peter on, 
Peter's not the leader of the church, so it kind of defeats that whole thing. James is the leader of the church. So James responds. Verse 14, Simeon, that's Peter's other name, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with these words, the prophets agree just as it is written. So he's quoting the Old Testament Jewish prophets. And this is God speaking to his people. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Why does he refer to this this Jewish prophecy? He refers back to say this was God's plan all along. God's plan was not that others would come to become Jews. Before Christ, the way to follow God was to become a Jew. It was. After Christ, now Gentiles and everybody else can be saved by faith alone, not by becoming Jews anymore. If you want to know more about that, listen to last week's podcast as we looked at at how Jesus actually fulfilled the Jewish law, fulfilled these prophecies. But now we no longer have to become Jewish Again, this is in your notes. But no works or deeds can be added as a requirement for salvation. We're saved by grace and faith alone, not by religious observance. We need to know that. We need to to internalize that truth. Look at verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Underline that. We should not trouble those. I mean, that right there could be, we could have titled it that. Don't trouble people coming to Christ. Stop putting barriers. Don't trouble them. That's what he says. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. That's pretty simple. (laughs) I mean, it seems like they would add a lot. And as you read through the rest of the New Testament, there's a lot to following Jesus as Lord, but they really only include two things. You know, hey, don't do this stuff and watch out for sexual immorality. You'll do well. Ta-ta. See ya. That's it. Two points. Here's the first one. The church is called to resist laying an extra bur- uh, any extra religious burdens on people. 
You know, we, we should not make it difficult for people to believe. Don't lay these extra burdens. And again, we can do this too. We can put these extra things, but do do a couple things. So here's the two things. One, he says, don't offend your Jewish brothers and sisters. That's what this means. You know, you're probably reading that going, don't eat things strangled. Like, who does that? I'm going to strangle the chicken. I mean, that seems kind of weird. This goes back to Jewish law, though. These new believers, in every church, there were Jewish believers. And that's, we see that. That's what he's saying in verse 21. From every generation, Moses has followers. There were Jews all over. And so every town that had a church, there were Jewish believers in those churches. And they were still tied to their Jewish tradition. They were free to eat whatever they wanted. Peter had a vision that that says that. Uh, Paul will talk about it in Romans. They were free to eat, but they were still kind of restrained, constrained by their traditions. And so he's saying this, don't offend them. Don't eat that bloody steak in front of them. You know, don't eat food sacrificed to idols. They struggle with that. That was a stumbling block for them. So you, in love, don't do that. You, You have the freedom to do it, but don't do it for their sake. In your freedom... Do not knowingly offend a fellow believer. Do not knowingly offend a fellow believer. We're going to talk about this more in group this week. Now, for us, we probably don't struggle with this, right? If somebody invites you over, you're like, was this beef strangled? You know, we we don't struggle with those things, but we have other things we struggle with, don't we? Alcohol, tobacco. You know, I was teaching many years ago at a camp, actually, um, and I was teaching, and I don't even remember what it was, but alcohol came up, and somebody came up, and they're like, actually, Christians don't drink alcohol. I'm like, well, there's this guy, Jesus, and he went to a wedding, and they ran out of wine. You know what he did? He made really good wine. <laughs> he's like, no, no, that was grape juice. I'm like, I've never heard this before. That was, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, back then, they didn't really drink wine. I said, but it says don't be drunk with wine. You can't be drunk on grape juice. There is a tradition that has formed, Christians don't drink. You know, and there's really good reasons not to drink. Absolutely. But we have the freedom to drink. We don't have the freedom to get drunk. We're supposed to avoid that, clearly. But if you're with people that struggle with maybe alcoholism in their family or with the, maybe a legalism, uh, Christians don't, don't cut, throw a stumbling block in front of them. Don't drink in front of them. Tobacco is another big one. You know, good old-fashioned Baptist churches, you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't dance, you don't go with the girls that do, right? Uh, These are things that are just kind of added in. Now, there's good arguments, but our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, why would you smoke? I I mean, there's some good things in there, but but you're kind of adding some tattoos. You know, we add these things in from our traditions that they did too, and and they said, don't, in your freedom, cause a stumbling block. So those things you can avoid, do. Again, if you're around people who have these religious traditions and they struggle with it, love them and avoid those things. Don't, in your freedom, flaunt your freedom, basically. And then here's the second one. Avoid sexual immorality. This was one they decided to point out clearly and abstain from sexual immorality. Why? These were Gentiles. These were Romans. You know, Roman culture, Greek culture, they were very free sexually. Anybody know a culture that's kind of like that? They were very free sexually. And so they say here, don't offend fellow believers, but you really need to stick with God's standard of sexual morality. And again, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in groups this week. It should be a good conversation. But as you read through the New Testament, it's pretty clear God's standard of sexual morality, and it's the same throughout the Old Testament. 
But you see it here, you know, this word immorality is the word porneia. Does that sound familiar? Porneia, which included anything pornographic, whether it be looking at things. They had stuff like that then, too. Whether it be looking at things. I've been to Pompeii. Um, there's certain areas you shouldn't go in Pompeii because there's pictures on the wall. You're like, yeah, that's porn right there. They had it in this time. Um, it, it included sex before marriage. Uh, it included adultery. And these things are outlined in the New Testament. Homosexuality is clearly outlined in here as not God's standard. And so he's saying here, sex, God's standard of sex is between one man and one woman within marriage. And there are many within so-called Christian denominations who would want to fight with that. But the Bible is so clear. The only way you can land on, on kind of this worldly view of sexuality is to reject the Bible or to reinterpret it in a way that it has never been interpreted for 2,000 years. And so this council decided two things. Don't offend people on purpose and follow God's standard of sexual morality. Every evangelical church must enforce a strict standard of sexuality for every believer. God designed sex between one man and one woman within marriage, period. Many churches have compromised on this. And those churches, they, they get the media time. Oh, look at, look at these churches. They've grown past that old tradition, and now you know, they've arrived. They're better now. Well, guess what? Those churches are shrinking because they can't give life. They are throwing out Scripture. They're throwing out sin. They're throwing out the gospel. There's no life in that. Now, is there grace when people come to faith and grow? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and we can see those situations where people living sexually immoral lives come to know Christ and then there's a struggle with them and the Holy Spirit. And in all honesty, there's some grace and patience with us as the Holy Spirit works with them to change them. Um, but we must, we must hold to a biblical standard of sexuality. So now I want to real quick kind of apply this to us. In here, I think we see three drifts that the church can go to, three drifts that we can be tempted by that we need to guard against. Here's the first one. A drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Isn't this kind of what we want to do as a church often? A drift to pacifying insiders, whether it's the big givers, whether it's the people that have been here a long time, whatever, but, but oh, we need to keep our people happy Rather than our mission is actually to be looking out. We're supposed to come here, get together, look at each other, be in group, worship together. But then our real mission is, is out. And so we want to reach out. We don't want to just uh, focus on what we want, make each other happy. Dress is kind of one of those. You know, again, dress is cultural. There's nothing wrong with wearing a suit. There's nothing wrong with, with wearing flip-flops and, and a tank top, whatever you want. Or wearing a hat while playing in the bass. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But for us, different cultures might be different, so we want to be careful with that. But this, this drift from a passion for outsiders, it's kind of funny. I was reading a book this week, um, and the, the writer of the book was a pastor. He took a job in California at a beach church, like they met on the beach. And his first time to preach, he went, and he was wearing a suit, and all the pastors were wearing suits, but everybody else was in shorts and tank tops. And he's like, it was really hot. And it made no sense. He said, when I took my jacket off, everybody cheered. There was, you know, and over time it, they adjusted, but there was just this, they were putting barriers up because their tradition, they were probably from Texas like Paul, the, you know, their tradition was dress up, which is not bad, but they were in the wrong culture. So again, this drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders, we can set up these boundaries that when people walk in, they go, ooh, these people aren't like me. This is different. This is weird. I'm out. 
Second one, a drift from grace to law. From grace to law. Again, our law isn't circumcision. We don't struggle with that. But we do place other laws. I already talked about alcohol, other things. We can, we can place these other rules in front of people. You know, the, the good old Baptist tradition, you go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Is that bad? No. But it, you get in this tradition, it's like, well, if you're really religious, you're really spiritual, you do these things. You, you have to do these things. We're free. We're free from, from law, from legalism. But we have this tend to, to drift, to drift toward law. And a lot of times, this can be secondary doctrines. Arminianism versus Calvinism, uh, the, the view of the end times. A lot of these things kind of eke in and become more important than they need to be. They're secondary issues that we can hold with an open hand, but then we part, start to close around this, and now we are a church about this secondary thing, and it happens all the time, all the time. You know, me, I, uh, I have a horrible sense of direction. So if you were to take me and just drop me in the middle of a city and go, Go east. I'd be like, uh, where's the sun? What time? You know, and maybe I have a horrible sense of direction. Uh, back before GPS stuff, I had an atlas under my car seat. And if we were going anywhere, I would print out the directions. I mean, like turn by turn. And I would watch the miles. In 0.8 miles, turn right. Okay, watch. I mean, that's what I need. I have no sense of direction. A lot of people that come into the church are the same way. I, I have this pull toward God. I know there's a God. I have this pull toward Jesus, and they walk in, but, but to a certain extent, they're like, I don't know where to start. And if we throw all these secondary things in front, it can be really confusing. Whereas it's pretty simple. It starts with this, faith in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he wants to be Lord of your life. So that's part of it. Are you willing to let him have control? But it starts off that simply, and then we can do what the Bible calls discipleship and start working through that stuff. In, these, in relationships, but it's not at once. Oh, come in, and now we have to do certain things. We put the wrong things first. Kiss method, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Now, this drift from grace to law kind of leads to this third drift. Internal transformation drifts to external conformity. Internal transformation drifts to external conformity. And we probably all can tell a story or two about this, right? You come to a church, and you realize, okay, the mature here speak this way. The mature here say brother and sister. I can do that. Hey, brother. Hey, you know, uh, the mature here dress a certain way. You know, it's a sweater vest. I can do a sweater vest. I mean, but we have these things that we can drift. Or maturity looks like you do these certain classes, you know, or you do these certain things exactly, and now, ooh, now you've reached the level of us. And a lot of times you can do these things with no internal heart change. Listen, God wants to change you. He wants to change your heart so you love what he loves. Absolutely. But it's, it's a change of love. It's a change of relationship that he does. And then we read and go, oh, I do want to obey you and go that way. We can circumvent that and just follow the rules and, and look good on the outside. And just, it's called hypocrisy. And we want to avoid that altogether. Be who you are. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to. Isn't that good news? Guess what? I know you're not perfect. And let me tell you a secret. I'm close to it, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing because you know how silly that is. We're, we're, we're all in process. We are free. Uh, you know, we have this on our, you know, bulletin as you come in. 
You don't have to dress up, pretend to be perfect, or worry about your past. We just want you to experience Jesus. He'll accept you where you are, but he won't leave you where you are. I think that's an important part. He's not going to leave you in, in your filth and in your sin and in your habits. He will want to change you. But again, let's avoid the external conformity, you know, and miss out on the internal transformation that God wants to do. Listen, if it comes that, hey, we're, a, say, a big church, and everybody looks real good on the outside, but it turns out we're all hypocrites, I'm done. I mean, we're doing something really, really wrong. And let me tell you, parents, grandparents, this drives kids away from the church more than anything else. Because at home, they see who you really are. Don't, don't fake it. Let's be the same here as we are at home. Let's be the same here as we are at work. We don't need to fake it. God sees through that anyway. These three drifts hinder the forward movement of the church in every generation. I say it that way to say, we're normal. <laughs> every generation struggles with this. Every church struggles with this. The early church with the apostles struggled with this. But here for us, let's keep our focus on what God would do Let's not pretend, let's be honest, and let's keep our mission in front of us. We want to grow in Christ. We want others to come to Christ. And let's stop putting barriers between us and others or between others and coming to know Christ. That's actually where the, the name of our church comes from, Common Ground. It's where Paul, yeah, in, in Corinthians, he says, I become all things to all people that I might save some. You know, to the Jew, I become like a Jew. To the Gentile, like a Gentile. To the weak, to the, you know, he says, I want to do all things. And in the New Living Translation, he says, I will find common ground with everybody so I can save some. That's what we want to do. We want to find common ground. Again, it's not throwing away biblical morality in our own life at all. But it's to stop putting barriers between people and faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to move to worship. We're going to take communion. And as we do, you know, this is our response time. And we think it's important to interact with God during this time. You know, are there one of these three drifts that you feel in your own life? You know, is there one of these that you struggle with, maybe? And, and maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you and, and you can give that up to Him. You know, or, or is there somebody in your life that you know needs Jesus? And you see kind of some of these things like, yeah, the church puts up these barriers. Well, maybe you need to go to them. And in a relationship, help break down those barriers so that person can come to faith. In communion, we are remembering what Jesus did on the cross. We are remembering that salvation is by faith alone, in Jesus alone, not by works. And so we do this. Again, this doesn't save you. You know, there's a lot of churches and denominations who would say taking communion saves you. It does not. But there is something a little bit mystical about it, I'll be honest. There is something pretty spiritual where we examine our hearts and then we take the Lord's Supper, we take the bread, and we take the cup, remembering that he died on the cross, remembering that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming again. And in this, we thank him, we recommit ourselves to following him as Lord, and we let him look into us and change us. Now, we also have our prayer walls. I want to point these out. You know, if there's something going on in your life, and you want to pray or you want prayer for it, write it down and stick it in the chicken wire. That's what it's for. Our prayer team will pray for it. Or if you don't want the prayer team to pray, don't put your name on it. You can just put it there as your action. I'm giving this to you, God, whatever that would be. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I thank you, as I think I do just about every week, for your word. Um, I thank you that you make following you pretty clear. Um, I thank you that we have the freedom to keep the secondary things secondary. 
the secondary doctrines, secondary. And we can have those beliefs, but they don't have to divide us. I thank you for that. Uh, in the New Testament, you talk about it as being united in your spirit. I thank you for that unity that we have. God, and I do ask that you would work in us to give us really a heart for those who don't know you yet, a heart for outsiders. God, that we would love you and we would love the lost more than we love our traditions. And God, even us, we're, we're a newer church. We've tried to avoid traditions, but we have them too. God, if there's anything in our personal lives or as a church that is a barrier to people believing, I pray that you would show us that, that we can adjust, that we could be a people, that when other people get to know us, they can see there's something different. And I want to know about your God. I want to know about Jesus. God, use us for your glory. They were at a, a unique time in history. If that church would have gotten this wrong, it would have made a big difference in the church going forward, but they got it right. God, I think we're at a unique point in history too. Uh, as a country, as a world. God, I, I ask that you would lead us, that we would follow you, that we would get it right, and we would watch you do great things, not because we're special or unique, but because you are. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.